Our heart cannot be divided to love God's holiness and still love the foul sinfulness of the world. If conviction of sin, hatred of sin, and a love of holiness do not flow from us, then we must look carefully at our hearts. Because believers in Christ will be convicted of sin, and the Spirit will not be silent on this matter. You're listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gadsden Podcast. Today's message from Pastor Colt Hudson is part of our current sermon series through the Gospel of John. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you. Thanks for listening. Well, amen. It is so good to be here again with you today and uh, so glad to continue our sermon series through the Gospel of John. So go ahead and be turning, if you will, in your Bibles to John chapter 7. And we're going to be looking at verses 37 through 39 today. Again, that's John 7, 37 through 39. So as you're turning there this morning, I just want to begin by speaking with you a moment about uh, a passage that's not John 7, 37 through 39. But as you're turning there, I, I want to share with you that there is a, a focus and a, a deep desire, it would seem, in any sort of biblical church movement, and even some that are uh, unbiblical church movements, uh, there's this focus and there's this desire for an Acts 2 type of church, right? Have you ever heard that? People talking about going back to Acts chapter 2. And the reason being is that the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples and they preach in foreign languages and God saves 3,000 people and the church is living out this healthy and biblical model, right? It's an exciting time in church history and that's something that we have this desire for as well. Now what does this have to do with the Gospel of John? Well, you see it's very simple. The full name of the book of Acts is the Acts of the Apostles, but in reality it's an explanation of the Acts of the Holy Spirit. In the past, I've heard people say things like, we need another Peter to preach the truth. We need another Paul to correct the churches. And this stretches on into church history as well, where people fall into this uh, great man theory. We need another Luther. We need another Spurgeon. We need another Adrian Rogers, and so on and on. These men were all great men, but even the apostles' preaching would benefit the church nothing without the power and the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And so as believers, as people, we are called to live in the Spirit. We're called to walk through life in spirit and in truth. We are to be led by the Spirit. Those men on Pentecost, they didn't bear that fruit themselves. The Spirit did. If we want to see a revival, a reformation in our churches, then we need the Holy Spirit. In today's passage in John, we're taught that we are to come to Christ that we may have that Spirit. Not to manipulate the Spirit into doing whatever we want and have some power to control, like Simon the sorcerer, but rather to be led, equipped, and empowered. And so let us see today what Jesus has to say about the Spirit and living water. Again, we turn our attention to John 7 verses 37 through 39. I'll be reading from the ESV. You follow along in your translation. Verse 37 begins, it says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer and we'll continue on this morning. 
Lord, we come before you this morning, Lord, recognizing that we are great debtors. Lord, we are debtors to your grace. Father, we come before you this morning thankful that you have shown us such grace. Lord, thankful that you have shown us the mercy of waking us up this morning and bringing us together here that we may worship you. And Lord, as we have worshipped you in song and in giving, Lord, we pray that now as we turn our attention to the word, that our worship would be no less important, no less focused on you. Lord, as we hear from your word today, Father, we pray that you would convict us, you would challenge us. Father, you would equip us and empower us for the task that you have ahead of us. Lord, we know that if we are to be a church that is pleasing to you, then Lord, you will have to lead us. Lord, we know that if we are to be a church that impacts this community, that, Lord, you will have to lead us and bear the fruit. Father, we know that if we are to be pleasing to you this morning, that everything we do and say must be for your honor and your glory again by your leadership. So, Lord, lead us, direct us, guide us, move in our midst, and have your way in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, if you've been with us for uh, a length of time, you know that there is a lot of stuff that's happened in the Gospel of John so far. And uh, if you haven't been here recently, I do want to catch you up just a moment because the context of this passage is so important for understanding what's going on here. Uh, Of course, we have the the whole seven chapters right up to this point, um, at this point, because we're almost at the end of chapter 7. We've seen Jesus perform great miracles, for instance, the wedding at Cana, feeding uh, the 5,000, which we talked about really probably about 15,000 people that were fed. Uh, We've seen Jesus walk on the water. We've seen him heal people. So there's been a a great whole bunch of stuff that's been happening in Jesus' life, uh, in his ministry at this point, and in the lives of these disciples who are walking along with him and in the, the community that we see in Israel. And so at this point, what's happened is that Jesus has garnered, again, a pretty big reputation for being a miracle worker. People are asking questions to the point that his own unbelieving brothers, they wanted him to go make a public spectacle of himself at the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's at this feast that Jesus has had some some big teachings. It's at this feast that the people are asking the question, can this be the Christ? And it's within that context today, it's the Feast of Tabernacles that Jesus comes to speak. A text today tells us that he stands up and he cries out, but it is on the great day of the feast. It's so amazing to me that Jesus at this point uh, comes into this feast and stands up and cries out. You know, there have been many people over the years who have tried to uh, make Jesus uh, less of a man, if you will. Right? Like, Jesus is a man's man here. These people, these Pharisees, are trying to kill him, and yet he boldly goes into the temple, stands up, and proclaims the very same teachings that they're trying to kill him for. He has such a a, a firm knowledge and trust of God's plan, and knowing that until it is God's timing, nothing will happen outside of God's will. He was not afraid. Man, if people were trying to kill me, I'd likely be going in the opposite direction. But Jesus knew that his father had a plan, and so he goes up into the temple at the biggest moment, at the highest attended moment, and he stands up and he teaches on the great day of the feast. Now, I spoke with you a few weeks ago about the Feast of Tabernacles. I explained to you that it's a feast of remembrance. At this point, what they're doing is the Israelites are remembering and thanking God for his provision of water in the wilderness. 
right? Remember when the water comes flowing from the rock, they have nothing to drink. God sends water from a rock. It's provided for them. Specifically, again, they're thanking God for providing water. They're asking God to provide for them in the coming year. So it's a twofold kind of feast. They're remembering, praising God for his provision in the past, and they're asking God to provide in the future. Now, during this feast, which lasts eight days, the Israelites, they build miniature tabernacles, uh, little booths with palm branches and such. And what happens is that the people then live in these tabernacles for the duration of the feast. So they build their own little miniature tabernacles, reminding themselves of how God dwelt with them in the wilderness, how he provided for them, how he met with them. They live in these little tabernacles, and each day they come into the temple waving their palm branches, and they enter the temple with singing and with dancing. They take their branches and they build a canopy over the temple altar, and they sing this. They sing, Save now, we beseech thee, O Jehovah. O Jehovah, we beseech thee, send now prosperity. And each day, except for the last day, the priests bring in a golden jar of pure, fresh water, living water, from the pool of Siloam, and they pour it into a tube at the base of the altar that then runs through the altar and fills up these bowls. And so for the people who are seeing this, it's very visual. The water, the living water, is running from the rock into the bowls below it, and this is to remind them of how God provided water, again, from that rock. This represents God giving them, again, that water. And as the procession meets its culmination on the final day, what happens on the last day is there is no water, but there is singing. And as the people enter into the temple on the last day, several commentators uh, have noted that what they would sing on the last day as they entered into the temple was Isaiah 12, 3, which says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. This is the backdrop, right? This is the background in which Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The day in which there is no physical water to be poured out, no physical water for which to thank God for his provision, we see that Jesus says, come to me and drink. Such beautiful imagery and it's so on the nose. This is obvious what Jesus is saying. Anyone there that day would have recognized immediately what Jesus is doing. But this morning from these three verses, what I want us to see is that there is a lot happening here. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, we can be filled with the Holy Spirit by his grace and we exhibit the fruit of being a spirit-filled believer. But the central theme of this passage is, again, one of living water, which is used to represent the spirit and life. And so as we think about living water this morning, I want to use the language of water for our points. And the first one is that of flowing in. Flowing in. In verse 37, Jesus talks about thirst and he talks about drinking. Right? Now, when we drink something, right? like I'll use a water bottle uh, as, as an example because that's the last thing I drank a few moments ago. Right? When I drink from a water bottle, I am taking that water into myself, into my body. It's flowing into me. And so in this verse, what we see is that by God's grace, something is flowing into our life here. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. This is our focus in this verse. In this point of the sermon, this is what I want us to focus on here is verse 37. We're looking at this statement, but I want us to first see the word if. If 
you are thirsty. Before anyone thirsts, they must know the barren desert of their situation. Now we as people, as human beings, we have a built-in desire for water. Our bodies are roughly 60% water. And what contributes to our thirst on a daily basis is a several kind of factors. The two biggest ones I think about um, is, for instance, for us at the moment, is the heat. If we are outside, it's hot. If we're working in the heat, we thirst. We get thirsty. The other one I like to think about is uh, that of eating. Right? If we eat salty food, right? for instance, I think about this when I go to a restaurant and I particularly eat something that's super salty, I will drink bottle after bottle of water all afternoon. Why? If we're eating salty or spicy food, then we thirst. The conditions in which we operate and the stuff that we take into us all the time make us thirsty. Physically. Right? But spiritually, there, there is an element to this as well. When we experience the barrenness of life without Christ, we will thirst for him. When we experience life in this world in which we see that there is nothing good, there is no uh, hope in it outside of Christ... It's only when we see that that we will thirst for him. But when we are convicted of that by the Holy Spirit, it's like asking a man in the desert, are you thirsty? Once we see that, once we see that there is no hope in this world, again, it's like asking a man in the desert, are you thirsty? Here's the thing. The Greek word for thirst here, it dips out. It's not just a thirst but it's a longing, it's a craving, it's a needing. But even more than that, thirst is the absence of what satisfies. Right? Like if you think about it, if we are, are physically thirsty, uh, we don't look in ourselves for water. We have to look to an outside source. Thirst is a recognition that what we have within us is not enough. Physically, it's our body saying we do not have enough water to operate effectively. Spiritually, it's a recognition that we need something outside of ourselves to satisfy us and meet our needs. But sadly, what so often happens is that we look into ourself anyway, or we look to the world. We recognize that there is, ultimately, we need something outside to satisfy us and meet our needs. We look for our meaning, our purpose. We look for salvation in the things and the stuff of the world. We look for it in our own worth, in our own pleasure, and none of these things will ever quench our spiritual thirst. Sadly, so many people are running from one dry well to another. They're running from one supposed source of water to the next, but all that we can draw from these places is sand. We instead are told by the scriptures to come to the true well, the good well. Jesus says, come to me and drink. If you are thirsty, if you know that there is nothing in you that can save or satisfy, and you're looking to the word, hear me, you're looking to the world, rather, it will never satisfy. Instead, come to Christ and drink from the well that never runs dry, as we sang a moment ago. That word drink, again, it means to receive into ourselves, into our souls. We're called to come to Christ 
and drink. Now, do you know that drinking is the easiest thing that a human being can possibly do? You know, Geico used to have those commercials that say it's so easy a caveman could do it. This here, what Jesus is calling us to do in drinking is so easy that a baby can do it. Think about it. We are born knowing how to drink. We come from the womb knowing how to drink. We're born craving and needing that which is outside us to sustain us. We should learn from that. Come to Christ and drink. Take Christ and his grace into us to sustain us and nourish us. We're helpless on our own. So we are to come to him and drink. How do we do that, right? It sounds great. But how do we come to Christ and drink? And the key to that is in verse 38. It gives us the answer. He says, whoever believes in me. We come to Christ. We drink of the Father's grace by believing in Christ. We have to believe in him. This Greek word is one I've talked about with you before. It's pastuo. It's not just mental assertion, right? Just a mental agreement. We're not simply saying, yeah, Jesus was a real person and that's it. But rather what we are doing, it's confidence, it's trust. We believe in Christ, certainly. We know that he is real. We know that he was resurrected from the dead. We know that he is at the right hand of the Father. But we also place all of our hope and our trust in him. We rely on him alone to save us. We trust in him alone in all things and we put no hope in our own works or our abilities and we put no hope in anything to save us other than the grace of God. Because to do that would be to look to quench our thirst with something that we already have. And again, the whole point of thirst is that we don't have it. So hear the words of Christ today. If you are thirsty, come to Christ and drink. Be saved. Place your hope and faith in him rather than looking to the empty, dry wells of the world and of self. We see that grace flows into us. And when we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, when we have faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells us. This is the grace of God flowing into our life. But what I want you to see today is that grace also flows out. Our second point this morning is flowing out. This is stemming from verse 38, which says, Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So our second point is about flowing out. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said that whatever is in the heart of man will come out, right? It'll flow out, ultimately. So if wickedness is in our heart, you can expect that we will work out wickedness. But if we are a new creation by the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God and the blood of Jesus, then we have the Holy Spirit inside us. And if the Spirit is inside us, we should expect the fruit of the Spirit to flow out. For instance, we see this in multiple places where this concept of water throughout the Old Testament refers to the Spirit. Isaiah 44.3 says, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my Spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Perhaps the most, uh, most relevant verse here is Ezekiel 36.25-27. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. 
And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So what we see here in in those two verses specifically is that there's a connection between water and the spirit. There's a connection between the pouring out of living water, the flow of water, and the spirit. Consistently throughout scripture, the imagery of water is connected to the spirit. And here at this festival, they're worshiping God for providing for them physical water in a physical desert. But here is Jesus showing that he is the provision of spiritual living water and eternal life in the spiritual desert. Jesus tells them, whoever believes this fruit will come from their spirit. Now, we don't do these works to be saved. We do them because we are saved. And I was reading a, a Puritan on this matter. He's a lesser known guy. His name is Daniel Caldry. He said it this way, he says, As the apple is not the cause of the apple tree, but a fruit of it, even so good works are not the cause of our salvation, but a sign and a fruit of the same. He's just saying the same thing. So a surefire way to evaluate what's in our heart is what comes from it. Is what flows from your heart rivers of living water or the stench of sin? What is in you? Is it the Holy Spirit bearing spiritual fruit, or is it the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, bearing nothing of value? The believer is not just seeing fruit flow, but seeing rivers of living water. In this context, rivers is important. Notice that it is not a river, but rivers. This is to show the abundance of graces and fruit that should stem from believers. The Holy Spirit is within you. It will show itself. Now, there are plenty of false teachings out there on this particular topic. Some will teach you that you are not baptized with the Spirit until it manifests through something like speaking in tongues. This is false. Scripture tells us that we are baptized and indwelt by the Spirit at the moment of our conversion. When I say that the Spirit will show itself in our life, I'm not talking about speaking in tongues or falling over. I'm talking about the fruit of the Spirit, conviction of sin, and testifying to the deity of Christ. If we are a believer, the fruit of the Spirit will flow from us. Well, what is that? Galatians 5, 22 through 23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, And self-control. Against such things, there is no law. This is what flows from us as believers. It's what's supposed to. If it does not, then we should pray and evaluate ourselves. But just, just think about these things. They don't need a lot of explanation. Is what's flowing from us a deep and abiding love for God and for his people? For his church and his truth, or is it hatred? Is what's flowing from our heart joy or bitterness? Is it peace, warmongering? Is it patience or impatience? Is it kindness? Is it goodness and faithfulness? Or is it faithlessness and a desire to do whatever we want to do? Is it gentleness? Self-control? Or is it a freedom to do whatever we desire? 
See, what flows from us will help us evaluate the kind of heart it's flowing from. In John 16, 7 through 11, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit will convict us of sin. And ultimately, the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. Which means not only that our behavior is going to change, but also our taste. If conviction about sin doesn't flow from our hearts, again, we should evaluate ourselves. As believers, we cannot have fellowship with the world and with God. Our heart cannot be divided to love God's holiness and still love the foul sinfulness of the world. They can't exist in that way. A house divided cannot stand. There's a poster in my office of a Charles Spurgeon quote. He says, as long as you and your sins are at peace, God and your soul must be at war. If conviction of sin, hatred of sin, and a love of holiness do not flow from us, then we must look carefully at our hearts. Because believers in Christ will be convicted of sin, and the Spirit will not be silent on this matter. If we are callous and indifferent towards sin, we seriously need to look at ourselves. Finally, the Spirit testifies to Christ. So if we are indwelt by the Spirit, we should see testimony to who Christ is as the Savior of the world flow from us. Not only will He testify within us, but we will testify to those around us. In John 15, 26, Jesus says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. We too should bear witness of Christ and who He is. We should especially do this by sharing the gospel with those around us. Testifying that Jesus is who the scriptures say he is. That he is the savior. That he is holy, that he is good, that he is gracious. These things should flow from us. Our character, our conviction, and even our conversation should be impacted by the Holy Spirit such that holiness, grace, and the gospel flow from us. Freely. Not a dribble, not not an irritating dripping like a leaky sink, but a flow. These things should flow from us. Because what flows from us reveals what we are. It's a fundamental truth. Now, I I see this all the time, very uh, pointedly illustrated when I'm at a drink fountain, because it seems that those things never work 100%. And if I press the Dr. Pepper button and something yellow and nasty comes out, I can say, that is not Dr. Pepper. Now, dump it down the drain. What flows from it reveals its identity. The same is true with fruit trees. I don't see apples on the branch and go, I wonder if that's an orange tree. 
the fruit, the flow, they tell us. And friends, our fruit, what flows from us, reveals much about the source that we have drunk from. If we have drank from the well of the world and sin and ourself, then our fruit will be rotten. But if we drink from the well of salvation, Christ's grace, we will exhibit fruit. Fruit of the Spirit. We will experience the conviction of sin and we will testify along with the Spirit within us that Christ is Lord. Finally this morning, I want to show you not only is something flowing in and flowing out, but it's flowing from a source. As I mentioned a moment ago, all of this is found in the source of Christ. In verse 39, Scripture tells us, let's look at verse 39 here for a moment because I want to be clear about what we're saying. It says, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now I want you to understand what's happening here. Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit is eternal. Right? We see the Holy Spirit working in the Old Testament. Several places. Verse 39 is not saying that the Holy Spirit did not exist or was not working before Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. But rather, that he was not yet sent to indwell believers in the same way. The Spirit is poured out on the church at Pentecost. The believers are indwelt for the purpose of evangelism, building up the church, growing in holiness. Jesus referred to the Spirit as the Helper. I want you to see here is that in verse 39, it it reveals to us a key truth and something that we should pay careful attention to. Remember earlier when I told you that we cannot have fellowship with the world and God, right? We can't join sin to that which is holy. So how is it that the Holy Spirit lives within us when we are fallen human beings? It's rooted in the fact that Jesus is glorified. It's rooted in the fact that we are justified by Christ. In Romans 5, 9, it says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And the Bible tells us we're justified by faith in the atonement of of Christ, that his blood paid the price for our sin, the punishment we deserved. So we are saved, we are free, we are guiltless in the eyes of God because of Christ becoming sin for us. He justified us so that we can be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, which is a promise of our own glorification in eternity. Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14 speak on this. It says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. When we believe the gospel, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Bible explains that he's the down payment, right? The promise that we will have perfected, glorified bodies for eternity, which we will spend with Christ. And this is to the praise of his glory. There is no other way that the Holy Spirit could live within us, save that we are justified by Christ, by our faith in him. And so we are to praise God for redeeming us and saving us and sealing us 
for all of eternity to the praise of his glory. As we conclude this morning, just by summarizing these, we see that Jesus said, if you are thirsty, come to me and drink. And so if you have been looking to yourself or the world to save you and give you meaning and joy and contentment, then you are probably thirsty. You're probably getting tired of the sand that the world has to offer and looking for pure, living water. Come to Christ and throw yourself on his mercy. Believe in him. Place all of your hope and your trust in him. But if you have done that, then the fruit of the Spirit should flow from your heart. You should be convicted of sin and passionate for God's holiness. And you should be testifying of the Savior. We should be praising him and giving him glory for saving us. As we see that when the fruit of the Spirit flows from us, when conviction and passion about sin and God's holiness flows from us, when we boldly testify in the power of the Spirit of who Christ is, that is the secret of Acts 2. That is when we see that people were coming to know Christ in massive ways. It's about the work of the Spirit. But he uses us. So friends, evaluate your hearts. What flows in and what flows out? Let's go in a word of prayer. Father, we come before you now. Lord, thankful for your spirit working within us, moving. And so, Father, we pray that now as as you work your will, Lord, as you convict of sin, Lord, as you call us to yourself, Lord, as you uh, work in us, sanctifying us, Lord, as your spirit works now, we pray that you would again just have your will to be done. Lord, we pray that in this place we would be honoring and glorifying. Lord, we pray that as we worship you here and now, Lord, we would worship you recognizing what you have done and who you are. Lord, let us not fall victim to the ways of the world of looking for something in ourself or something around us to fulfill us. Rather, Lord, let us look solely to you and your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gadsden Podcast. We would love for you to join us on campus for worship Sunday mornings at 1045. We look forward to seeing you. Have a great week.